1: In 2004, director Clint Eastwood and star Hilary Swank gave the world a film
0: that challenged both society's morals and the structure of the sports film. In 2019, the Isle of Scotland gives us a whiskey sure to challenge our expectations for a blended scotch. The film is Million Dollar Baby. The whiskey is Monkey Shoulder. And we'll review them both. This is the the Film and and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Brad G. I'm Bob Book, and this week we're looking at the 2004 film Million Dollar Baby. And today we're being joined by a special guest sitting here to my right, the wonderful Jen Lowers. Jen, thanks for being here today.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So, fun fact: I go back way, way back with Jen. We uh, we met. How far back do you go? Bob? We go back to like second grade. We go back to when we were known as Jenny and Bobby. Yeah. That's how far back we go. It's It's been a minute. Bobby Boucher. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, Jen is a PhD student at Kent State University studying the coolest – like, her dissertation topic, her research area is the coolest research. Can you shine a little light on what you're doing at Kent State right now?
2: Yeah, sure. So, I study the reading and writing that people do outside of school, uh, predominantly in their homes or – But even in situations like this. Yeah. So this is something I would study right now. Um, And I study media and.
0: So when you say reading, you're not just talking about like books or written text. You're talking about other alternative sort of media.
2: Definitely. I study different text types. So um, movies, music, video games, art, uh, text messages, social media, all of those things to me are reading and writing and things that I would study.
0: So, we have a perfect guest for the podcast today. That's literally what we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. One of those mediums being filmed. So, let's talk a little bit about this film. Uh, Have you ever seen Million Dollar Baby, Brad? I have never seen Million Dollar Baby before this viewing. Till just now. Yeah. So, we're talking about the Best Picture winner of the year 2004. Next week, actually, we're going to be talking about another Best Picture contender, The Aviator. And so, these two movies went up against each other. It's going to be really cool to see what we think of Million Dollar Baby versus The Aviator. But for today, we're talking about what most people consider to be Clint Eastwood's masterpiece. What were your initial impressions on the film, Brad? And can you summarize it for us?
1: Yeah, so a quick summary of Million Dollar Baby. Um, So, the main characters are played by Clint Eastwood, Hilary Swank, and Morgan Freeman. And the basis of the story is that Clint Eastwood and Morgan Freeman own a boxing gym uh, where they train some boxers and Hillary Swank is a out of work, mostly out of work waitress in the, I believe it's the LA area. Yeah. In LA, um, who doesn't have any money and she's from the deep south, Mississippi, Alabama, something like that. Uh, I it
0: was like the Ozarks, but I don't know, uh, wherever. Uh, you know, she's from somewhere, the deep somewhere south, podunk. The deep south, by the way. <laughs>
1: And so, long story short, Hillary Swank wants to become a great boxer. Uh, Clint Eastwood points out the, the difficulties in that. She's overage. She's not young enough to do this. Um, but she just has this fire and drive and passion to become the very best. Yeah. And so, the movie is about Clint Eastwood um, trying to manage her and train her and push her away. He doesn't believe in her for right. a
0: lot of the movie. Um, and it, yeah, it's about their adventures together. It is about their adventures together, and I'm really glad that you have not teetered into spoiler territory, although if you've been listening to the podcast, you know, and this is your official warning, we are going to get into heavy, heavy spoilers for Million Dollar Baby. It has been out for 15 years. If you haven't seen it, that's your own fault at this point. Go watch it now. Turn the podcast off. Watch the movie and then come come back. Come back as we talk about spoilers. Yes. So when you went into this movie, Brad, speaking of spoilers, we're talking about one of the biggest sucker punch endings of all time, right? Whoa. I mean, what a twist. Did yeah. you know anything about this movie going in? I knew that it was about boxing. So you had no idea where the twist was coming from? Absolutely no
1: idea. And especially going to a boxing movie, you know, what, what movie do you think of when you think of boxing? Oh, Rocky. Rocky. For sure. Yeah. So with the Rocky movies in mind, which, you know, the Rocky movies have their own twist with him not winning the first match right. and stuff like that. But when you go into this boxing movie, you have a... A specific sports narrative that you know. You know, the person starts off and they're nobody. They get trained up by an old, wise mentor that helps them become the best. Right. They have some sort of personal flaw or failure that keeps them from being the best. They overcome it and win the title. Yeah. And that's almost what happens. Almost. Almost what happens.
0: So, flashback to 2004. I am going to the movie theater with Jen to go see this movie. You and Jen saw this together. We saw this together. We did. I'm pretty sure we did, actually. And it was the first major movie that I had ever got, had spoiled for me on the internet. I remember I was reading a review and they were like, oh, we're going to give away the ending. And me being a dumb, like 14 year old, I was like, oh, I can't. I mean, you know, what's the ending? Maybe she loses. No. I had well, the whole... She <laughs> whole, does, in fact, lose. lose. <laughs> it's, it's terrible. <laughs> I had the whole movie spoiled for me going in. And so oh. I have never felt like I've been able to fully appreciate this movie. Jen, did you did you know anything about it going in?
2: I didn't, but I do remember now that you said that, you saying, I know what happens and I can't say, but...
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, so you didn't spoil it for me.
0: Yeah, but I kind of tipped you off by saying, I know what happens. I can't say. <laughs> well, you, Bobby. You, Bobby Book was the worst. He was the worst. <laughs> The worst. All right. So this is Clint Eastwood's movie, right? I mean, he's he's the composer of the music. He's the director. He's, you know, the lead actor in the movie.
1: I was blown away that he was
0: the composer. Like
1: literally the credits were going down and I saw that he wrote like a lot of the songs in the movie. Yeah. I would have
0: never guessed. I actually think it's probably his best score. He's done quite a few of his own movies.
2: It's amazing, really.
0: I think so, too. And the thing with Eastwood is, you know, he went through his phase where he wasn't really viewed as a serious force in Hollywood. He was, you know, the man with no name in Sergio Leone's spaghetti westerns. He started directing his own films, but they were mostly action films or something that was considered more slight. And then 1992 rolls around. He directs Unforgiven and wins Best Picture. He wins Best Director. It's he's a force to be reckoned with as a filmmaker now. And I think that there's this long stretch of Eastwood's like catalog where he focuses on these big morality tales starting with Unforgiven and ending maybe here or a couple of years later like with his war movies. This falls right squarely into what he was doing at the time. He's trying to tell a very mor- morality-based story and wrestling with ethics in the real world. So what do you I mean what do you think of Well do we want to get into what happens I think we should, we might as well, yeah, we might as well just say it now. Okay, so spoiler alert, the
1: final big fight of the movie, um, Hillary Swank has been fighting her way up through the ranks, and she finally gets to the point where she is fighting for the championship of her Walter Wade, or Featherweight, or whatever she's in. She's fighting to become the champion of the world, and she's fighting this, uh, I believe it's a British-Jamaican boxer. Yeah. Uh, German, right? Was she German? They called her, like, the the something of Berlin, right? Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, she's fighting this boxer who is known for being extremely dirty. Uh, as soon as the ref turns around to, you know, say anything about points, she'll jack you in the face. And so, at the end of the fight, um, I believe they were – to me, it seemed like they were about to announce Hillary Swank the winner. And then the other boxer turns around while the ref is turned away and just jacks Hillary Swank in the face – Hillary Swank falls into her corner where they were putting out the bench for her to sit on, and she breaks her neck and becomes paralyzed from the neck down.
2: By the way, to me, as a woman, that's a perfect metaphor for how other women kind of try to take each other down in positions of power yeah, instead of helping each other and kind of building each other up.
0: So I want to get into this a little bit and let, like, let's, let's just totally spoil the rest of the movie. Yeah, so yeah. she's, she's a quadriplegic. She's lying in bed. She develops like sores. Eastwood sees her deteriorating. He's wrestling with, do I mercy kill her? Essentially. And she asks to be sort of put out of her misery. He says no at first. She tries to bite out her tongue and commit suicide. And finally, he, he comes to understand her quality of life is going to be so low. Um, I, I can no longer tolerate this. Morality that I've been dealing with and that I've been receiving from the church. I need to do something that's going to basically set her free. And so he does. He kills her. And the end of the movie is kind of ambivalent or ambiguous in terms of is he redeemed by that act or is he lost as a result of that act? And so it opens up a world of super difficult ethical conversations to have. But the first one I want to talk about, and this is something that Jen was talking to us about off air, is this movie's treatment of women. And I'm really interested to hear what you guys think about because there are very few female characters in the movie. And it's a big plot point that Eastwood doesn't train girls. Girls aren't really welcome at the gym. And so the only females you see are Hillary Swank, her family members who are female, and then the boxers that she faces. And I, I suppose another character that you don't technically see is Eastwood's daughter. Right, because in the movie, he's he has an estranged daughter. That he
1: writes to every single day trying to reach back out to her, and she keeps sending the letters back
0: unopened. Right, right, So, okay, thoughts on the general treatment of women as characters in this movie?
2: Um. So, in kind of exploring this movie and looking at what the critics said, I always try to kind of compare my own views to what mm-hmm. other people say. Um, and one of the things I noticed is that a lot of people criticize the portrayal of femininity in this movie. Hmm. Um, so that was something that I thought a lot about while I watched it. One of the arguments that's made is that this movie only showcases women in a negative light um, in terms of femininity. So the only characters that have kind of tradition what we perceive as traditionally feminine characteristics like wearing makeup and dresses and stuff are actually Hillary Swank's family members. Oh, interesting. Right. So and she has no meaningful relationships with any other female characters who are portrayed in a positive manner. Uh, for me, I can think of pl- I can think of plenty of movies um that don't portray masculinity and men in a positive light so it's not a problem right but i can definitely see where they're coming from with that another criticism that's been pointed up is that um this movie buys into white male authority and female submissiveness and ultimately promotes uh submissive dependence on a strong white man who is clint eastwood
0: interesting and i think this is a good place to jump back into what we think of the performances and the script because i think it plays into both of those so i don't know we, let's go to performances first Well, in relation to what she was saying with
1: Hillary Swank's performance, I think part of it is possibly just being from a Southern culture that is very much so a respect based culture. Yeah. You know, throughout the entire movie, she keeps calling him boss. Right. Like, hey, like, hey, boss, what can I do better? What can I, you know, and she keeps calling him boss and makes him frustrated. But in the end, I, I think it is kind of part of that Southern culture of respect that, that she just grew up in. And then on top of that, you also have the boxing culture of, your trainer is always right. Your trainer right. knows what to do. And so there there is that sense of, you know, is it is it a male dominance or is it just kind of the culture that she was in? Whether or not that's right that she should be treated yeah. that yeah. way and treating him that way. But that's
0: just kind of where she was.
2: I agree with you. I think it is just part of the boxing culture. But definitely something interesting to think about.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, okay. So here's my hot take. And I want to get your guys' opinion. Hillary Swank wins the Oscar for this movie, and like she put the work in. She did the Robert De Niro in Raging Bull thing. She went method. She gained thirty pounds of muscle. Is she good in this movie though? Is it like, and I think part of it, and we're going to get into the writing. I don't think she has much of a character. She's she's really submissive. She barely talks, and then you you see her being determined and having a will to do things, and that leads to her death at the end. You know, and her desire to die, but. I don't really know that I saw that much range in her performance, and maybe that's a result of not having a character written for her. You can dis- please disagree with me if you do.
2: I think it's because she doesn't have much she doesn't have much range because she hasn't had that many kind of diverse life experiences. Sure.
1: that I was literally thinking the exact same thing as Jen was saying that.
0: So you think it's an intentional thing that she's playing. As an actress and not a limitation in her own like acting ability,
2: especially after having seen her in films like Boys Don't Cry. Yeah. And other performances she gave that were really amazing. I think it's intentional with
0: Aaron Eckhart, the the greatest film of (laughs) all. No, I, I, I understand what you're saying. I just there's something about her character. And maybe it's the fact that the onus is kind of on her. They're putting all the weight of female characters on her in this movie. You know, we talked about it with Goodfellas a little bit. When there's only one major character who's a female, they have to carry the weight of, you know, everything. Femininity. Absolutely.
2: That's one of the criticisms of this movie by, like, feminist scholars is that she has to give up kind of every aspect that's feminine Mm -hmm. in in society's eyes in order to be able to be successful or have a chance at success, rather.
0: Interesting. So, So, this is where I want to get into the writing. So, the writer of this movie is Paul Haggis. Paul Haggis went on to write and direct the Oscar-winning Crash the following year after this. And he's kind of become a pariah in Hollywood now because of his association with Scientology and just being a general dirtbag. Um, so, Tom Cruise has the Scientology, but not the dirtbag part. Not so much the dirtbag okay. that we know of. <laughs> I think this is an awful script. And I, I know I'm in the minority, but like... I think the writing in this movie is so heavy handed. Everything about it is like Paul Haggis is doing. He loves doing that thing where Morgan Freeman as the narrator at the beginning of a scene, he'll say a line and then at the end of the scene, he'll say the same line again. And it's like, oh, see, it has a second meaning now. And after like the fourth or fifth time where Morgan Freeman was like, some cuts are too close to the bone. I was like, all right, dude, we get it. We understand what you're saying. And the way he writes his characters as just these sort of un nuanced black and white I'm, I'm primarily thinking of hilary swank's family like the you know quote unquote like trailer trash family and the way that they have no level of nuance to them that i don't i don't know was it necessary for the movie to have characters like that what do you guys think of the script i,
2: I think everybody had followed the stereotypes that exist for them
1: yeah when i think about the movie i as much as the movie is about Hillary Swank, I think it's more about Clint Eastwood and his development as a character. <laughs> and I genuinely think that all of the other characters in the movie, whether it's Hillary Swank, Morgan Freeman, or her uh, hillbilly family, they are all people for him to bounce off of right. as he changes. Even the Catholic priest that he, that he talks to, the Catholic priest never changes. He's always kind of harsh and belittling yeah. towards Clint Eastwood. And so, I would say the movie is more about
0: Clint Eastwood changing because he's the only one that really changes by the end it of the It really film. is his – like, the movie is about his arc as a character even more than it is about Hillary Swank's arc as a character. So, I guess that's
1: where we look at Hillary Swank's performance and do we look at it and say, yes, there wasn't really as, as much range as we might hope for, but there was a depth of determination in her character that was genuine. Yeah. But I think that's what I love most about Hillary Swank's character – is that there's nothing about her that came across as fake. Yeah. She so genuinely wanted to be a great boxer. And you especially saw that when she told Clint Eastwood, like, like if I don't have this, what what am I doing? Right. With foreshadowing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
2: I also think she has a lot of childhood, childlike qualities yes. that kind of makes her the perfect person to bounce off of Clint Eastwood um, and have him try to get redemption.
0: For sure. Yeah, they definitely play them as opposites. He's, he's the hard, grizzled, cynical, jaded guy, and she's optimistic.
2: If I take you on, you don't say anything. You don't question me. You don't ask Quiet. You don't say anything except maybe, uh, yes,
0: Frankie. And I'm going to try to forget the fact that you're a girl. That's all I ask. And don't come crying to me if you get hurt. All righty. We got a deal. No, not quite. I'm going to teach you how to fight.
1: And we'll get you a manager, and I'm off down the road. Well, I hate to argue with you, but... Don't argue
2: with me. That's the only way we're doing it. I teach you all you need to know, and then you go off and you make a million dollars. I don't care. You Get your teeth knocked out. I don't care. Mm -hmm. I don't want to hear about it either way. That's just the way it's going to be. It's the only way I'll do it.
0: But then, you know, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves because we're going to have a really interesting talk when we try to analyze this movie. But that leads into a question of, What's the message of this movie is is Clint Eastwood just his character, right? Is it that you never open yourself up to anybody because you get hurt? Because that's what they say at the very beginning. And it's the it's the the line that's like the motto of the film. Always protect yourself. And every time that comes up again, you see somebody opening themselves up, getting hurt, whether that's physically in a boxing ring, emotionally by trusting someone. You know, you get that early scene where Eastwood is training a fighter. And he won't give him his title shot, and then the guy leaves. And they would say again, always protect yourself. It's like this constant theme that Eastwood doesn't want to be vulnerable because he knows he'll get hurt. And in the end, he's kind of proven right. Well, the real question is then if, if always protect yourself
1: is kind of the core of the film, at least it's, it's Eastwood's core philosophy that drives him throughout the film. Yeah. Was his, uh, murdering of hilary swank at the end of the movie protecting himself protecting her yeah and i think that's who, like, open who to interpretation exactly
0: protect. well and that's where i struggle with this movie because it's like is is it open to interpretation Or is it just poorly written?
2: I think it's open to interpretation because he's sitting in the diner at the end. Yeah. So, they're like, uh, Morgan Freeman's character, Eddie's like, oh, I haven't – he never even left a note. I didn't see him. He just left suddenly. Yeah. Then they're showing him in a diner. I think that leaves it open to interpretation because he had so many positive experiences in diners with uh, Maggie. All
0: right. So, that diner scene, I think, is actually – is a really good sort of microcosm for the whole film because – You're right. He does have a positive experience in there. And that's why, in my mind, the movie is trying to say that when Eastwood did what he did, it was actually redeeming to him.
2: I think so, because I'm... Do you remember the conversation in the movie that said they were having uh, that conversation about him potentially buying a diner? Yeah. I think it leaves it open to interpretation that he maybe did use his savings, decide yep. to abandon the boxing gym, and then buy the diner. There's right. no... I mean, because if you think about it, that's that's kind of the beautiful part of that end scene for me, the ambiguity, because the fact that he's sitting in the diner doesn't necessarily mean that he owns it, that he bought it. Yeah,
0: he could just be floating around as, like, this broken shell of a man. So,
2: we don't know if he's broken and he's sitting in that diner because he's heartbroken about his loss. Right. Or if he's sitting there because she changed him so much that he was able to seize the moment and actually use his savings to purchase a diner and and leave that. Because she kept saying, oh, I really can see you just relaxing, eating some pie, reading your books.
0: Mm. That's interesting because then she becomes kind of a martyr figure in that way. She had to die in order to kind of purchase that. You know, that salvation for Clint Eastwood, if you will.
1: Yeah, I wonder if him being able to release himself from Maggie, who is his daughter figure. Absolutely. He was able to release himself from writing those letters to his daughter and move to another place that's far away from his daughter and buy a diner (laughs) and move on it. And in a sense, coming back to always protect yourself. I think that writing those letters every day was it was in essence opening himself up to be hurt. Sure. Every letter that he wrote to his estranged daughter opened himself up to be hurt another day in a row of another letter returned without any love or relationship being poured back into him. So once again, does he go to the diner and buy it? And he's protecting himself from that hurt. And Hillary Swank allowed him to come to
0: that place. Yeah. What are some of your other favorite scenes in the movie? Anything that sticks out to you? I loved Morgan Freeman's 110th fight. (laughs) Oh, that's – can we please talk about that scene? Because that's one of the most problematic scenes in the movie for me. Really? I can't wait to talk about that. I was confused about what they were trying to do with that scene. So, in the context of the movie, uh, you've got uh, this character, Danger, who is clearly, like, developmentally disabled, right? And Morgan Freeman is kind of being protective of him. And there's this fighter – in the gym that's training for you know like a a a really significant fight and he's really cocky and he's a jerk and he picks on danger and basically they set it up so that Morgan Freeman has to be out cleaning a bathroom and this fighter is beating up danger like brutally beating him up Morgan Freeman who's an ex-fighter comes out of the bathroom you know takes a glove off of his own hand and just bare hand knocks this guy out and that's his 110th fight that he never got to have. My question about that scene is like, what function is that serving in the movie? Because if you notice that scene happens and then Hillary Swank's fight happens immediately after that. And I feel like they're trying to play those two off as a comparison contrast. And that's the, that's where Hillary Swank gets paralyzed. And it's very clear that they're trying to make Danger and Hillary Swank like comparable characters, and yet completely different things happen to them. So I don't know like what what's the basically Morgan Freeman saves danger, right but Clint Eastwood isn't able to save Hillary Swank. She comes out of that paralyzed and interestingly enough, danger leaves the
1: leaves the boxing ring or the training gym afterwards. And after
0: Hillary Swain. He doesn't dies, come back. Yeah, he doesn't he, come. he comes back after she dies though. Right. As like the new Hillary Swain. Maggie. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, but I don't know what it's trying to say. Are they trying to contrast those two scenes? Because if they are, they're not different enough. If they're if they're trying to compare them, they're not similar enough. Is it just about like the meaninglessness of this all, where sometimes good people get hurt and sometimes they don't? Sometimes you can't protect people.
1: Could it possibly just be a cheesy scene that they wanted to give Morgan Freeman a little bit of redemption?
2: Until you said you asked me if those two s- scenes had a relationship, I didn't see them as related. When mm-hmm. I watched them, I honestly thought, OK, this is like one of those crowd pleasing scenes for the theater yeah. where somebody, you know, everybody, some, someone says something kind of funny and everybody in the whole theater laughs. Right. This is like one of those crowd pleasing scenes where we've all been wanting to punch that guy in the face for the whole time we've been watching the movie. Right. Right. So Morgan Freeman just goes, you know what? I'm done with this. And he puts on the glove and he goes over and he does what we as audience members wanted to do the whole time.
0: Right. Yeah. And maybe that's exactly what it is. And I'm just reading into it too much. But it was fascinating to me to see that scene back to back with Hilary Swank's prize fight.
2: I think the problematic part about it from a writing standpoint, from what you just said, is that especially – In some scenes of the movie, like the opening scene, they do cut back and forth between two different scenes. Right. So it makes them seem related. So as a writer, we're expecting that already because it's already happened so many times. Yeah. But then we get to that scene and they're cutting back and maybe they don't seem related. I think that's just a flaw in the writing.
0: Thanks a lot, Paul Haggis. Way to go, Paul. (laughs) Well, guys, I don't know about you, but I think that we should taste some whiskey. Let's get to this monkey shoulder. What do you say? Good old monkey shoulder. Let's do it. All right, everybody. Time to try some whiskey. Jen's going to sit in with us on this whiskey tasting. And today, we—it it is a momentous occasion. We're moving out of the world of bourbon into the world of scotch. Brad, what do you know about scotch? Scotch, scotch, scotch. <laughs> down in my belly. We don't know much about <laughs> it. Mm-mm-mm. Jen, are you familiar with scotch at all?
2: Uh, definitely not. <laughs> yeah,
0: I'm not really a scotch drinker either. And I, I feel like people are either bourbon drinkers or scotch drinkers. And I've just always remembered the scotches that I've tried taste like someone extinguished like a cigar into them.
1: Yeah, from everybody that I've ever heard talk about it that doesn't like scotch says it tastes kind of like turpentine. And I'm not fully sure what turpentine like smells like, but I
0: don't think it's a good thing. No, I don't. I also don't think it probably tastes very good. So the thing about scotch is that it has its own lingo attached to it. If you pick up a bottle of scotch and read all the description of it. It it It's like code for something else. And today we're trying a scotch that's called Monkey Shoulder. It's a really popular blended scotch. Now, what that means is that they have gotten whiskey, scotch whiskey, that was made at three different distilleries. And they've blended them together to make this whiskey. But you'll notice that the description is it's blended malt scotch whiskey. What's a malt, Bob? Now, when you see the word malt on a scotch, what it means is that it's all barley, Like, the mash bill is all barley. That's what malt means. So, like, if it would have said blended grain scotch whiskey, it was like a mix of grains. Kind of like with your bourbons, how you could have four different, five different grains in there. But this is all barley, and I'm pretty sure that I can smell all of that barley when I put this up to my nose. It's very peaty. It definitely is peaty. So, the proof on this is 86. So, it's not crazy strong. Not crazy strong. Brad, what are you picking up on the nose here? It smells so much different than bourbon. And that yeah, might it, be the most really does. amateur
1: take that you'll ever hear on this podcast, but it, it's like fascinatingly different.
0: I visited a guy uh, in Tennessee a few months ago and he gave me some moonshine, like real moonshine. Yeah. This smells like moonshine. It's it's crazy the amount of just like harsh alcohol coming off of this right now. Which is funny because you wouldn't expect that from something that is an 86 proof. No, not at all. Jen, how about you? What do you think of this?
2: Uh, it smells sort of like bourbon had a baby with gin.
0: Oh, that's actually that, a super
1: good description. Yeah, I actually, I really agree with that, because gin does kind of have that biting
0: yeah. nose to it. Yeah.
2: A little bit hairspray
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm not picking up, like, any sweet notes on this at all. No. Like, it's t- no. you can tell this is going to be a scotch whiskey. Yeah, there's no caramel. There's no vanilla. No, not at all. Well, you guys ready to give it a taste? Let's try it. Yep. Oh, it's sweeter in my mouth than I thought it, it would actually be. Pretty smooth. It's got a little bit of... Sm- oh, man. After right. I swallowed... As I'm breathing out, I can I can smell the smoke coming off of my tongue right now. I'm a fire dragon. Wow,
2: it's kind of like spicy but florally.
0: Yeah, there.
1: Yeah, there's definitely more flavor more flavors than I expected. You bringing up the floral is very accurate because in the bourbons, I've never really picked up on any of the floral hints. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you kind of get a.
0: Maybe a blackberry-ish, blueberry kind of feel to it. Interesting. Yeah, I'm not getting any of that, you guys. I'm just getting, like, smoke, and then, like, it's tempered by a little bit of sweetness.
2: Well, it kind of tastes a little perfumey, but in the best way possible.
0: I like this. I'm not going to, like, I wouldn't, obviously, I wouldn't mix this with anything. This is the kind of whiskey that you drink neat or you don't drink. So, as it's sitting on my palate,
1: I feel like I'm getting the flavor of, like, hamster bedding. Like I'm serious though,
0: extra harsh on this. I
1: like I worked I worked at a pet supplies plus for a long time. Yeah, and so I smelled a lot of like guinea pig and hamster bedding. Yeah, and I like genuinely as it sat on my palate, I was like, I had this memory of
0: like moving hamsters. So what do you guys think about the finish on this? You were talking about as it sat on your palate. It genuinely tastes like (laughs) hamster bedding, and I don't know if that's a terrible thing. But it sounds like a terrible thing. I I didn't get a lot of smoke, like when it was in my mouth, and then I swallowed it, and it's all smoke.
2: You're right. The smoke kind of lingers in the back of your throat, yeah, almost like it's puffing out a little mm-hmm. bit, mm-hmm. and like making the back of my throat kind of.
0: If I was gonna weird. smoke a cigar while drinking whiskey, this would be a perfect match. But Brad's, Brad's over here experiencing the smoke right now too. <laughs> Try not to cough. And it's definitely, um, we you know, we've talked about how some of our bourbons have, have warmed us on the way down. Like, this is a lingering finish all the way down. I wouldn't say that it burns going down the way, like, Jack Daniels would. Mm-hmm.
1: But it has a nice burn to it. Yeah.
2: It's a lingering burn.
0: Yes. For sure. What about the balance overall for this whole thing?
1: I guess with the overall balance, I would say that. In a good way, it's not balanced. It doesn't smell like it hits your palate. Right. And then once it goes down, the finish (laughs) is different than the taste and the nose. Yeah. But I think it's a good
0: movement from each piece to the next. I thought the nose was kind of offensive. Like, it it stuck out the most. Agreed. Uh, The taste, I was really happy that it was sweeter than I was anticipating because it smelled like it was going to taste like pure alcohol. It tasted sweet, and then it finished smoky. So you're right. There's there's three totally different things going on. I don't know if that means that the balance is terrible or that it's a really complex blended scotch.
1: Yeah, for me, the the movement from the harsh nose to the sweet – well, it's hard to say sweet. It is not as sweet as a bourbon. No. I'll just say that right now. But the move from the harsh nose to the sweeter taste to the smoky finish worked really well for me.
2: I think the stages balance each other. But it's not all balanced at once when you taste it.
1: For sure. Yeah. So let's go through and score it. What would we give for the nose? Jen, what do you think?
2: I'd give it a nine. I actually really liked the way it smelled. I was like, okay. But I also like gin and bourbon, so I was sort of excited about the love child of that.
0: (laughs) I thought the gin comment was actually really perceptive because once you said it, I couldn't not think of that anymore. Brad, how about you? What do you th- what do you think about the nose here?
1: I was not a huge fan of the nose. I think it kind of assaulted the senses really quickly. So uh-huh. I'm gonna
0: give it a four. Yeah, I gave it a five, uh, just because again I'm not experienced in scotch. I don't know what to really expect out of this. So I'm gonna be polite and give it middle of the road taste. I said six. I, I liked how sweet it got. I wasn't expecting that.
1: I actually am gonna give it an eight. Okay. I really liked the taste. Uh, as it entered the palate, as it moved through the mouth. I
0: thought it had a great, great taste to it. Yeah, How about you?
2: I'm going to go eight as well. I I completely agree with that.
0: On the finish, I gave it a seven. I mean, I, I know that scotch is supposed to be smoky. I know that it's coming, <laughs> and it definitely did. It showed up. Um, this This is the kind of thing I could sip on for a half hour to an hour at a time. This is a really good, slow-sipping whiskey.
1: Yeah, I would give it a seven on the finish Um, for me that I never understood what people talked about when they said that it had a peaty or a peat kind of Uh taste to it. I get that now. Yeah. Like it definitely does. And this sounds bad, but it kind of tastes like grass or like that. That mossy kind of of earthy taste. earthy taste. I never thought that that sounded like a good thing. But having it now, it's not my favorite finish, but it's interesting and it's fun and it's unique. Yeah. Jen, how about you?
2: I said six. Yeah. It sort of reminded me of this throat coat tea that you drink when you want, you know, your throat to be coated with something. And it lingered slightly more in a textural way in my throat than I really wanted it to. Sure. Um, Yeah, that's about it. I
0: get that. Okay, so overall balance. Now, we're talking about from the time we smelled it to the time it was in (laughs) in our stomachs. If something really sticks out to me that takes you down a few points. I want a consistency. And for me, the nose was the thing that really stuck out in a negative way. So I would give the balance a six overall. I liked the later stages of of the mouthfeel and the taste and the finish, but the nose really didn't, Do it for me.
1: Yeah, there was so much movement from nose to taste to finish that I'm going to give it a four. Mm. Um, I I struggled with the balance. And maybe it's one of those things where if I had this more often and I got used to that movement, I might like it more. Mm -hmm. Um, But right now where I'm at, I'd say a four. Jen?
2: I said eight. I thought it was kind of fun to go through those stages. I'm like, oh, here's this one and this. And now that it was kind of fun to ride that wave.
1: So looking at the putting
0: all the scores together, uh, I came out to a 23 out of 40. I was at a 24. Jen I believe was at a 31. Yep. 30 so million. That that actually since our preview episode, that's the first 30 anybody's given. So this yeah. is this is a pretty highly rated one. Okay, so overall we're looking at a score of 88. For, for all three of us combined so right. like a twenty nine point three which is i mean that's that's three quarters of the way up our metric here this that's is that's pretty high yeah yeah and if we just average out me and brad we come to about a twenty three and a half you know and actually i think that this is probably a better whiskey than a twenty three and a half would indicate
1: yeah but, i mm, uh, looking back at my scores i might be able to raise it up a little bit but yeah, yeah twenty three to twenty five range for me is about where it would sit
0: again for like a non scotch drinker This is a scotch I would keep on my shelf for sure. Um, I paid, I think, about $30 for this. It's not that bad. That's not bad at all. I mean, that's a a standard price of a fifth of whiskey at this point. You know, that's not bottom shelf. Right. And for what you're getting for $30, like, I think it's a heck of a value. Great value.
2: I think it's the perfect introduction to scotch for someone who doesn't typically drink it.
0: Definitely.
1: Yeah, if you're somebody who drinks uh, whiskeys and, you know, Canadian whiskeys or bourbons and you want to try a scotch you want to kind of move into new territory
0: monkey shoulder would be a great way to start that so brad would you recommend i would recommend i would as well jen definitely endorsed by all three of us ba, 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 ba. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the first one that's ever been endorsed by three people at once
1: i wouldn't say it's great but it's good it's fun it's yeah. interesting it's yep it's an
0: adventure so that's monkey shoulder what do you guys say we get back to talking about million dollar baby Alright, so that was Monkey Shoulder. Really good blended scotch. My glass is empty impressed. and I wish that it wasn't right now. So let's get back into talking about million dollar baby. There are so many directions we can go in terms of ethical dilemmas that are being brought up, themes we can explore. I think one of the big ones is something that Jen wanted to talk about. So why don't we why don't we go into that right now?
2: Yeah, one thing I wanted to talk about, I thought an obvious theme of this movie was poverty. Mm-hmm. And it's ultimately the story of a waitress who's been working in the service industry since she was 13 years old, trying to get by on minimum wage. Right. So a lot of things that popped into my head were how, you know, people like Bernie Sanders says the minimum wage should not be a starvation wage.
0: Yeah. yeah. She's
2: literally stealing half-eaten scraps of food off of plates just to kind of ward off hunger.
0: For
1: sure. There is a sense, though, that she is also paying for a membership at a gym and doing and buying boxing gloves. And so there might be a sense of if she spent all of her money on food, she might not have to steal as much. So she does have a an, a larger goal she's in life goal.
0: Yeah. than just survival. This gets me into like thoughts, though, of is this movie kind of just what people think poor people should act like? Because she's always kind of chasing a goal and she's actively trying to get... Out of poverty and she's, you know. So, she's the ideal poor person and her family are the not ideal. Exactly. Like her her family, we don't know what her mom's condition is. But time and time again, we're told my mom's obese and, you know, I don't want to live like that. And her mom is presented as, as being dependent on welfare and not wanting to get out of that situation. And it's very clear her family is portrayed as the most negative characters in the whole film. So I wonder what's trying to be said about poverty in this movie. Is it just that, you know, Clint Eastwood's like championing, championing pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps?
2: If this is the only movie I ever saw about poverty and I were in poverty, I would be a little bit offended that the only portrayal of it really is that I'm... I'm kind of telling my daughter who just bought me a house, look, I can't even I don't even want this house because it might take away my disability and then yeah. I'll have to work.
0: Well, and then that gives us into also the conversation, the conversation about disability in this movie. And I know and, and Jen did some research as well. Disability advocacy groups were just pissed after this movie came out because of the way that they perceived it as portraying disability as just basically a death sentence.
2: Right. So, um, one critique of this film about disability was that it presents a problematic portrayal of disability Mm -hmm. in many ways. The first way would be that it presents disability as a death sentence. So, if I'm disabled, it's better to be dead. Um, And there were also a lot of disability activists, like you said, who called for boycotts of the film because it advocated for people with disabilities to be euthanized. Mm And then some critics also said that it provided an unrealistic depiction of disability by pointing out that the kind of bed sores requiring amputations would likely not have arisen in the kind of upscale nursing home she was in and definitely not that early into her stay. Mm -hmm. And then some other critics uh, pointed out that since 1990, there have actually been laws in place that allow patients uh, like this who are conscious but quadriplegic on and on a respirator to just ask to be disconnected from the device. So he might not even actually have had to go through the act of killing her right. in the first place.
0: Right. Which makes the question then, why was it necessary in the context of the narrative, of the story, for him to kill her? And we actually watched this really interesting video on YouTube from this channel called Just Right W-R-I-T. Go check it out. Um, and his argument was that the disability advocacy groups kind of missed the point because the movie was making this really larger... Uh, More kind of like meta commentary on disability as a whole and that they portrayed poverty as a disability They portrayed obesity as a disability and that they portrayed dependence as disability And so maggie comes from a background where her mom is poor obese and dependent on the government And in order to be successful, she has to reject that entire way of life and become rich Physically fit and independent and so when she lands in a hospital bed She's fighting against this idea of dependence again. And so her her physical disability is just an extension of her mentality through the whole movie, which is life isn't worth living if I have to be dependent on somebody.
2: I think that's why they kept saying that's why her character in the hospital bed kept saying things like, I've seen the whole world. I've traveled. I've been able to achieve my dreams. I don't know how I can go back to that lifestyle. I think kind of supports what you're saying. Yeah, for sure.
0: Well, I mean. You know, not, not to tip our hands too much, but Brad and I both went to seminary. We both work at churches and we have this worldview that, that human life has value and in, in all its forms and all its stages. And we – I watch this movie especially and I'm like, what is the point that's being made about a valuable life?
1: Yeah, and I think the big thing here is that if we're talking about dependency and disability being the main negative factors portrayed – then what's the opposite of that mm-hmm. productivity? Because right. as soon as you see uh, Maggie's productivity cease to exist, she considers herself worthless. Worthless, yeah. And that and that's where we talk about the value of human life. What makes a person valuable? Is it their productivity? Because if you look at that, then I think there's a case you can make where her mother is not productive at all. So why
0: don't we euthanize well, her? Well, and that's the the they're passing judgment on her for her. Inability to be productive. And, you know, Brad and I kind of fall on different ends of the political spectrum, but we were just talking a little bit about Clint Eastwood's character in this movie. And I don't, I, I struggle not to read Clint Eastwood's personal political beliefs into this movie. He's come out on record in a ton and talked about his libertarianism. He really hates the idea of people being dependent on the government for anything. And I just wonder if this movie is his large sort of, you know, Critique. old, old man screed against people being dependent on anything because it has really, really deep moral implications. Like she doesn't want to be alive because she's dependent. And Eastwood is portraying a life well lived as never being dependent on anybody.
2: I agree with that. I actually was really upset with Clint Eastwood's character in this movie, uh, especially when he was approaching her with those college pamphlets. And he's like, Hey, you could go to school. I'm thinking to myself, Wow, he didn't even really try that hard to convince her. He's just kind of <laughs> handed her the pamphlet and she's, of course, someone in that, I don't blame Hillary Swank's character at all yeah. for her reaction, her response to this tragedy based on her past experiences. That's all set up for us very well from yeah. a writing stance. But then you get into the fact that she suddenly is saying, oh, life's not worth it. No, I'm not going to go to school. He doesn't even really try to swear. He just kind of scoots the pamphlets aside and then makes a plan to euthanize her.
1: Yeah, that, that was something that bothered me a ton. And I think that's an area where, you know, the disability groups that got upset with the movie really have a strong point. Is the movie just barely gave lip service to the idea of living a meaningful, purposed life yeah. while being disabled. Absolutely. And that and that was something that just oh, that I remember when he said that, you could tell he was he was just giving lip service to it. It was just this sense of like well, you could go to college. And it almost felt like Clint Eastwood
0: was like, but real people don't go to college. Yeah. Like that's, that, that's just meaningless. Right. So there's one more thing that I think we should talk about. And, and it's a big theme in the movie. And that is the idea of uh, what is love. And how Baby does, don't hurt me. <laughs> how does Clint Eastwood love Hillary Swank's character? It's very clear that, that they, they form a father-daughter relationship and it is very explicitly laid out by Paul Haggis in the script. What? Yeah, I know, right? No like, way. Like, oh, I lost my daddy. And she's like, oh, or he's like, oh, I lost my daughter. Wow. All I have is you, Frankie. So it, it's very clear. My question is, in, in the context of this movie, what does it mean to love another person? And the conclusion that the movie comes to, which I don't mind that it comes to this conclusion, is that Eastwood rejects, his character rejects the advice of the priest, who says, if you do this, you'll be lost. He immediately goes and talks to Morgan Freeman, who basically gives him the opposite advice, which is you need to do this. He goes and does it. The music uh, uh, resolves into this nice major chord, telling us that he did something good. And then at the end of the movie, we see him in this this diner eating pie the implication is that he's been redeemed and so what i think this movie is telling us is that loving somebody is necessarily um giving into their requests even if their requests hurt you personally so i mean is that is that an interpretation that we agree with is that what we think love is and what is this movie really saying in terms of that
2: Maggie walked through that door with nothing but guts. No chance in the world of being what she needed to be. A year and a half later, she's fighting for the championship of the world. You did that. People die every day, Frankie. Mopping floors, washing dishes. And you know what her last thought is? I never got my shot. Because of you, Maggie got her shot. If she dies today, you know what her last thought will be? I think I did all right.
1: I know I could rest with that. So with love as a major theme of the movie, which I guess I wouldn't have necessarily seen right away, love being a major theme, but I think the more you talk about it, I think we might have done Maggie a disservice to say that all she was after was making herself so that she wouldn't be dependent on anything through money, yeah. physical fitness, all that stuff. I think she genuinely was looking for love and relationship and community. Sure. And she found that in that boxing ring with Morgan Freeman, with Clint Eastwood. Right. Um, and so, yeah, but what do we say about love when it asks us to do something like, hey, I, I'm worthless now, so kill me. Right. And instead of trying to convince her of her worth, he kills her. Right.
2: I think what it brings up about love in the two ways that it presents it is there are people who love you who say they love you, but they don't. their actions don't support it. Right. There are people who say they love you and their actions do support it. So her mom's saying, this is my daughter. I'm here to take care of her. But really, she's just literally shoving a pen into her mouth to try to get her to sign away yeah. all of her money to yeah. her.
0: Really subtle, that, that stroke. Paul Haggis is, <laughs> is a master... <laughs> Oh, I hate this script so much, guys. <laughs> no, but I, I agree with you. And I one of the things that I've struggled with is I can be okay with a movie's mastery, even if I disagree with the moral conclusions that it draws. But I don't know that this movie really draws its moral conclusions that well.
2: It doesn't. I, don't th- I didn't feel a lot of closure to a lot of the questions that it was asking yes. that were big universal themes. Like you said, what is love? Uh, how can you get redemption? It doesn't try to answer those things. I, I mean, it attempts to, but it doesn't ultimately do it.
0: Yeah. And again, like, I don't mind that the answer that Eastwood gives us is the rejection of religion, because, again, religion is is a form of dependence, right? It's being dependent upon what the priest is telling him to do. And in order to escape that, he has to defy what the priest. T- I don't even mind that. What I struggle with is that it's still kind of muddy what they're actually saying is the right thing to do.
1: Do they have to tell you what the right thing is to do?
0: No, they don't. But then that's where we get into like, oh, is it just like a really masterful, ambiguous ending or is it just poorly written?
2: My problem with it is, uh, uh, off of what Bob said, is that Sometimes Paul Haggis spoonfuls the kind of spoon feeds things to us that he gives us uh, puts things right onto our lap and makes things so obvious that when things aren't obvious, it kind of bothers you as a viewer. Yeah, because everything else is so spoon fed to you.
1: Right. Yeah. And I think that's somewhere where a director like Scorsese shines out brightest is that he doesn't just spoon feed you things. He takes you through the narrative and allows you to come to your own conclusions throughout the movie. So that at the end of his movie, when things aren't clear, you're not left hanging. Sure. Whereas in this movie, you really are left hanging. Well, like you said you're just spoon fed all these ideas on life and poverty and
0: all these things. And then at the end of the movie, it's just kind of like, OK, well, now it's a choose your own adventure. Exactly. And, and it really does. For me, it comes down to that last shot. It's all about how you interpret that last shot. And I'll give them credit that there is there are two ways to interpret it. But if you interpret it as Frankie has been redeemed by what he did then it really is condoning every other problem that we've talked about, which is disability is a death sentence. Poverty is essentially, you know, it's a form of disability, obesity, and it's a rejection of all these things. And so in, in my mind, if you view Frankie as being redeemed at the end of the movie, then it makes the whole movie more problematic ethically. And the
1: thing is, I, I think that if you just take the movie based on its own merits, I would say they are viewing Frankie as redeemed. Oh, I would say think the, so, too. The music pushes you towards that. The way the shot is that kind of nice, quiet fading, you know. We're just going to leave Frankie here and let him live his life out. It, it definitely yeah. views him as redeemed. Right.
2: Especially because his character had changed so much from the beginning to the end. I mean, even when they were on the trip, she was uh, he asked her, or just before they went on the trip, he asked her, okay, well, how would you like to travel there? And she oh. just says, oh, I'd like to... Fly there and drive back. He goes, well, how do we do that? But he was willing to do it because you could tell in his past relationships, he regretted not having taken time to do things that people he loved wanted to do and also enjoy the small moments. Sure. They have a lot of small moments together on those trips where they're just kind of eating pie and saying, oh, have you ever had a dog, Frankie? He wouldn't even have engaged in a conversation about have you ever had a dog with a trainer or I'm sorry, a trainee as a trainer prior to that scene.
1: Which we see with his first fighter. I think his name was Willie. Yeah. His first fighter. He would have never had a conversation like that with Willie. Everything was about the
0: boxing. And I will say this like going back just for one last second to the acting in the movie. Like we talked about Hilary Swank not having much to work with in some ways. But I think that those scenes with Frankie and Maggie in the car together. The dialogue is so obvious of like you know my daddy had a dog named Axel and I was like oh this is not foreshadowing at all you know. But They sell it like those those quiet moments in the movie are the best parts of the whole movie in my mind. It's the sincerity that shines through. And And I don't I don't think we give enough credit to Eastwood as an actor in this movie either. I think this might be his best screen performance that I've ever seen Clint Eastwood give.
2: I agree with you. It has He has a lot more range in this movie than he's ever had before. Usually he shows up as a tough guy or as a kind of an older wise guy like right. Gran Torino mm-hmm. who has kind of things figured out and he's here to save the day. Yeah. And in this movie, he's vulnerable. He's um, trying to change, trying to get redemption, trying to figure out what is love. Mm. What's the right way to love somebody, given the fact that I've maybe not gotten it right in the past with my daughter.
0: Absolutely. And, and again, like... You know, Eastwood was in this phase of filmmaking where he made Unforgiven, which is like his way of deconstructing what's a Western. Why are we idealizing the old West? This was it was violent. It was cruel. It was cold and harsh. And I feel like in some ways he's doing the same thing with us as viewers of sports here. You know, why do we watch people beat on each other? These are the results that you don't see behind the scenes. And this is where the real humanity comes in, is in these moments of working with a paralyzed fighter and and dealing with the ethical implications of that.
1: Which you also see, he works with a paralyzed fighter in Morgan Freeman. Right. In the sense of he's half blind and and has difficulty living his life. It seems like they make him have an addiction to gambling, Mm. Morgan Freeman. So, like, he's already worked with a fighter. And with this one, he takes the path that he does choose.
0: Yeah. Well, let's let's wrap this up a little bit, guys. What would you say, if you had to score the movie out of 1 to 10, what would you give this film?
1: Oh, man. This is such a hard film to score because I think going into it, I think there's certain aspects of the movie that were very heavy handed, which we've talked about. Haggis has a very heavy handed script, Mm -hmm. but mm, it's the sincerity of Hilary Swank and Clint Eastwood that sells it for me. I would give it a nine out of ten. A nine? Yeah. Jen, what would you
0: say?
2: That's exactly the number I was going to give it. Nine out of ten, because I told while I don't. 100% agree with the criticisms that have been made, and I didn't really feel that 100% when I was watching it. I would say that I would give it a 9 out of 10, just because it had so many good qualities, but also some problematic elements.
0: Yeah. I think that you have to give credit for what Eastwood is doing with form here, like with the genre. This is something you hadn't seen in a sports movie before, and you have to give him credit as a director for that. My problem is that if a movie comes to a conclusion that I don't agree with, as long as it makes its argument well, I'd get it. But I still don't know what this movie is trying to say. And I think that's what bothers me. And I don't think it's because it's like so well crafted. I think it's just kind of muddied a little bit. So, I would probably give it a 7 out of 10. Mm. Yeah. I used to love this movie a lot more. And and the older I get, the more I realize how problematic a lot of the aspects are. Huh. that That's interesting. Would you recommend this movie?
1: I would highly recommend the movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's not – I would recommend it in the fact that it opens you up to think about the suffering in the world. Sure. And and as much as you might not want to watch movies like that all the time, I think part of the beauty of film is allowed, it allows you to escape reality. But another side of the beauty of film is that it does allow you to interact with situations that you might not have been through yeah. with an emotional attachment that is very real. You are emotionally attached to Clint Eastwood's redemption, to Maggie's story, her rise to stardom and fall. And so I I think it allows you to create an emotional attachment that you might have never had in real life to think about an issue, not only through the lens of logic, but also through the heart of the matter and
0: and how you feel about things. Absolutely. Jen, how about you? Recommend?
2: I would recommend it. I would also keep in mind, though, that... um As a teacher, if I were teaching my students about poverty, this would be the last film I would show. (laughs) Right. Because I just think that that's kind of the most problematic element of it is that it portrays people in poverty as kind of wanting to hang on to their welfare checks and not contributing to society. Whereas there are a lot of people on welfare who are kind of physically disabled and not able to contribute to society. So I would have liked to have seen either her mom be sort of like the mom in What's Eating Gilbert Grape, where she's so morbid, morbidly right. obese that we don't even kind of, we can't even see her positively contributing to society. Right. But because I can look at this woman, like Brad said earlier, she's just not that obese and she could contribute. Uh, she's, just,
0: she's just lazy. She, is, right. Is what it, they puts, give. yeah. it
2: gives it a very bad light, I would say.
0: So we want to hear what you think, though. So, hit us up on Twitter, at Film Whiskey, or if you want to yell at me for my semi-negative review of Million Dollar Baby, you can... Seven
1: is still a good... Seven is still... Well, <laughs> it's semi-negative. Yeah.
0: You can call, our, call in line at 216-800-5923. Leave us a voicemail. We'll play it on the air. Once again, that's 216-800-5923. We will be back next week talking about the 2004 film, The Aviator. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G.
2: And I'm Jen Lowers.
0: See you next time.